Hello again, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to have Dave Matson, CEO of Sander Training, as my guest. Dave, would you mind giving the audience quick one or two minutes on how you got to where you are? Marcus, I actually started as a client. So I sat in a Sandler program way back in 1986 because I thought that the harder you work, the more successful you would be. And I found <laughs> out very quickly that's not true. So putting in 18 hours a day didn't make me 18 times more successful. So I sat in a program run by a Sandler trainer and I realized that salespeople are made, not born, which was also news to me. And then I just started practicing and I got better at it. I became their number one salesperson. And then I went to work for the Sandler trainer, which really gave me the opportunity to see Dave Sandler live. Now, I had been a client, so I already fell in love with the Sandler methodology. And then to watch David work when we were at our national conferences was special. And then at some point, he asked for somebody to come help him because he was growing at such a pace, needed help. And I found myself saying, hey, man, that's me. And the rest is history. Well, that's very serendipitous. Tell me this then. I'm seeing a lot of change within the training environment. And in terms of buyers' preferences in how they consume training, what are the trends that you're seeing organizations like us have to adapt to? Well, I think the challenge is going to be not to chase every shiny object, right? So, <laughs> as, and I'll give you an example of the latest shiny object that was thrown my way. Dave, you don't have to travel as many places. Why don't you give your students a hologram so you can pop up on stage and it's really like Obi-Wan Kenobi, which makes some sense until you really think it through. And so that's one of those things. But I think what's going on is that people want access to content 24-7. They're now saying, as an example, they used to show up and we would provide training in a face-to-face environment, which is great. And I still believe that's the best way to do it. But because technology has played such an important role in everybody's lives, but certainly in the younger generation's lives, that preferences have kind of changed. Now people want to get a lot of pre-work. I'd like to listen to something. I'd like to see something. So I'm not showing up at a seminar and we're doing 101. I'd like to kind of figure out how to apply what I should have done ahead of time. So that's really has changed. And, And all these different modalities, Marcus. So You've got videos now, you've got audios, you've got tools, you've got micro learning, because even, you know, we've put in 2,700 different micro learning lessons in the last 12 months. That's a lot. And B, think about all these videos that are one to four minutes long. Now, my personal preference is not listening to a video that's 60 seconds long. It doesn't do anything for me. So I'm still happy with the 45-minute podcasts or 60-minute podcasts. But in today's environment, you've really got to create materials for different modalities and make sure that is accessible 24-7, and it's a challenge. That's interesting. Why does training tend to fail then? Because you see the amount of money that's being spent on training, but we're seeing sales performance decline. I think we were talking to Jonathan Farrington last week. And there's been a 9% decline in the number of salespeople who are hitting target. And it looks like there's going to be a further 5%. So 14% over something like five years, six years, to 42 to 43% hitting quota. So why is training failing? Well, I think lowering the number of people that are hitting quota, that brings you to, all right, why is training failing? Well, first of all, training does not replace good management, right? So you can't, as a manager or as a sales leader, saying, I've probably hired the wrong person again, so I'm now going to throw them over to the training department or sales enablement, and they're going to bring them back to me as a studette or a stud. It doesn't work that way, right? So to me, there's your first premise. I think you've got to make sure that you at least have a, some clay that you can work with and that, that yeah. wants to be molded and can be molded. But I think if I were to net it down, Training fails for a couple of reasons. Number one, the training that people set up is not relevant. So training for the sake of training, that's great. But is it actually training that I specifically need to increase my productivity in my job? Or is it there is a trend, hypothetically, 
let's say that we're not having enough people go through the funnel. So everybody's going to go through qualification training. All right. Well, that may help some, but if it's not helping me, then that's a big failure. So not relevant, I think, is important. And I think some sales leaders, they manage in teams and they forget that their team is made up of a group of individuals and the training plans should be made up by individual, not by a trend that you see in a piece of paper. So that's one. I think the other one is that the learner doesn't put in the time. Going to training, the sales manager can't check a box and say, well, they're fixed, but nor can the learner. A salesperson can't go to training and say, well, I've went, so therefore I am now, quote unquote, an expert in, let's just say, account planning as an example. Training should be the beginning of the investment that you're going to have to make to be a professional. Like I would hope my doctor just doesn't go to a seminar and say, you know what, I think I've got this open heart thing figured out. No, there's some practice or some things that go on here. You know, so that's there. And I think the other thing is that bad trainers. Listen, there's a lot of bad trainers out there. There's a lot of people who were fired last year and don't have a job and are considering themselves consultants or trainers. And I think what we have escaped at Sandler is that our trainers sell every single day. So when somebody is there saying, hey, Marcus, that sounds really cool. Could you show me how to do that? You would waste no time jumping into a role play and demonstrating how that works. But in the world of training, there's an awful lot of trainers, Marcus, that have no real world experience or certainly haven't had that experience in the last 10 years. So they are spewing content, but not really driving it home by doing a role play being challenged, showing people what to do, because adults do learn by imitation illustration. So having me sit in a training program by somebody that has never actually cold called, and we're talking about prospecting, sooner or later, I'm going to realize you don't know what you're talking about, and it's a waste of time. I always find that telling people that I eat what I kill is a very productive way of getting people to buy in to the idea that what we do, given my weight, it carries some (laughs) cafe. So you mentioned managers, and I really want to come back to this because I don't think training will ever succeed unless the managers are involved. And so often we hear things like, well, I want you to train my junior people. My veterans don't need it. I don't need to be involved, which I think is complete bunker. What is it that causes managers to think that they're somehow above it and that their veterans don't need it? Well, I mean, I think those are two separate questions. I think most managers think that they may be above it because they can do it themselves. They just don't have the time. So we would like you to train. And that's not the case. I would tell anyone that is buying training, if your sales leaders are not participating and bought in, it is a social donation. You either need to not do the training or fire your managers because You do need congruency. I mean, think about it. If they go to a sales training course and the manager doesn't go and you try a technique or a strategy that you've learned and the manager has no idea what it is, they have to say to you when they're out there on a call with you, if that ever happens, hey, uh, Marcus, that's not how we do it here. This is what we do over here. You know, it's like sales training is awesome until the last week of a quarter. Then forget it. Just lower the price and just pour it any way you can. We got to get the money through the door. So you want them to be able to carry it through, to reinforce. There's no trainer internally or externally that is going to be with the individual as much as it needs to happen in order to make sustainable change because we don't have magic water. So they can hear it from us. We can establish that culture, that learning environment, but the manager needs to reinforce it. They need to use the words that were taught in the class. So The learner says, okay, well, they're on board. They need to make sure that they don't need a PhD, but they should be able to talk the talk. And I talk about this thing called congruency, which is super important because salespeople, they hear what you say, but they watch what you do, right? And it's like, I'm going to use a very basic social example. I have five children. And, you know, if I have this big campaign, let's say, hey, I don't want you smoking. But at the dinner table, you know, I'm on my third cigarette. That's a bit of a disconnect. They're like, well, I heard what you said, but look what you're doing. And that's what managers have to be very careful of. And I think there's three sections that a manager has to pay attention to. So number one is 
before you go, you should sit down with the people and set some goals based on what the program is. And based on what I know about you, here's some things that I would really make sure that we pay attention to. and, And you should come away with some aha moments. So set the stage so it's not just, hey, go enjoy your three days in the sun. And by the way, yet I hope you enjoy the seminar as well. So pre is very important. During the seminar, if a manager, like in our seminars, we require managers to be in the same program. And if you're there, then I think you should be supporting what's being said in front of the room. You should be running table exercises so the potency moves from the trainer to the manager. And you should be answering those types of questions. And then after the training program, you should get a list of all the aha moments that the learner had. We call them hot list items. So collect those 15 to 20 things that the person said, this was awesome. I'm going to use that into my day-to-day activities. Well, as a leader, let me see what those are. And let's break these down. So you can't do all 25 at once, but hey, let's take these five and let me help by training and coaching and all the things that are necessary so you implement the five. And then let's try another five and another five. And so I think all of those things help a learner get all the support necessary, Marcus, in order for them to take their game to the next level, if you're going to invest in training to begin with. This then raises the next question, which is around learner responsibility. Let's tackle learner behavior. What are the behaviors that you would encourage managers to encourage with their teams and the individuals within their teams to make sure that learners take personal responsibility and ownership for their own development? Well, I think depending on the size of our teams, you're going to have some willing participants and you're going to have some hostages, right? So we want to minimize the hostages because... Sometimes hostages have loud voices. And I'll, let's just take CRM. If you're implementing a CRM product, some may be for it, but you're going to have others that are resisting. And if you don't deal with that, the resistors tend to make more noise than the people who are accepting it. So you just got to pay attention to who's embracing it and who's not. But I think to answer your question specifically, one of the things that I would be doing is to make sure that we have an open mind. Right. So I want to make sure that my people going to there, they have an open mind and they're not in denial. So listen, this may not apply to you, but maybe it does. When you hear something, if your mind automatically says, oh, that's not for me, suspend that immediately and say, well, if it could apply to me, how would I do it? What would I do differently? I like the phrase of, let's pretend the exact opposite of what I do is true. It's more effective. What would I do differently? Because our first reaction, if we're not searching for an answer, we're there to say, please teach me, Marcus. I'm an absorption rate. Just I'm a sponge. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Well, most of them are going there on a mission. So I would like to say, okay, well, when you hear something and your mind automatically says, not for me, stop immediately. Chances are it could be. But then the second thing I tell people is, why don't you bridge the learning nugget that you just had and bridge it to other parts of the business? So for instance, at Sandler, we teach something called the upfront contract, which is how to set agendas. And you may hear it about how to do that on a phone call. But if I were to bridge it, I'd say, well, okay. Where else would I actually set agendas? Well, I guess maybe on a sales call to begin it, certainly to end it, maybe on a team sale. And that way you can take what you've learned and sit back for a second and figure out where it applies in your overall business and not just situationally. And I think that's really important because sometimes when people are going through training for the first time, they want you to repeat the words. Well, Marcus, that was awesome. Could you say that one more time? Uh, What was the next sentence? Just one one more time. And the words are great, but I think you and I both know, I mean, I've been doing it 30 years. The words that come out of my mouth are never the same. And then people get confused. Well, they're confused because Sandler teaches rules, not scripts. So just like spelling, you know, I becomes 4E except after C and all that stuff. So if you just know the rule then the words will come. And so I think people get messed up sometimes by worrying about the wrong end of the problem. But those are some just quick things. But I think the other thing is, the last thing, and you know, 
from just because of my personal relationship with you, I'm a big believer in practice and rehearsal. Yeah, it's just my thing. So I think if you've learned something and you say, well, that's quite interesting, I'll have to try that. Chances are that's the beginning of you're never going to try that. But if you were to maybe on the way home, that was one of your things that you said that would have an impact. Why don't you just try that technique? And let's just say it is a script just for the sake of the argument. Say it out loud five or six times. And you'll realize the first three times it was horrific. But the fact that you've practiced and your ears heard what your mouth was going to say, you're more apt to do it in real life because you've gotten past the, oh, this is going to be just an absolute freight train in your mind because we fantasize about how bad things are going to be. And I think by the time you've gotten it down, your confidence is up, you've got conviction, and now you're willing to do it. But I think you've got to try it out before you go into a, a live situation. I think there are a couple of other aspects that I'd like to build into that. I think that people tend to fear failure. And failure is definitely has definitely been my best teacher. I can honestly say I cannot remember any really significant victory that has taught me any real lessons. Along the way, I've learned through a damn good drubbing and falling flat on my face, breaking a few limbs along the way. Then some of the teachers, a rule that doesn't really translate very well across the Atlantic, today's dump is tomorrow's ice cream. <laughs> had all sorts of awful connotations over here. The stuff that you fail in today, if you capture the lessons, and this is the thing, I think as a learner, we have an absolute responsibility to capture the lessons of failure and work out how we can modify our behavior facing similar circumstances in the future. And that then brings us to the next issue, which is risk-taking. Learning should be an opportunity for you to practice and to fail in a safe environment. And I think this is where a lot of training seems to have fallen short in the past, particularly in my experience where my managers were doing the training, where they didn't encourage us to really fail, take risks, push it to the limit, try it in lots of different ways. What they told me was, this is the way I do it, do it this way. And if I try and sound like you, I'm going to sound like an oaf because that's not my authentic voice. Another really important part is to document your lessons. Because there's a wonderful proverb, which is the weakest ink is stronger than the strongest memory. And I think that people will learn a lesson, but they won't write it down for whatever reason. Then they can't refer back to it because I can't even remember what I had for breakfast half the time. And so again, I think that's really important. The other piece is to pay attention to that voice in our head the voice that tells us this will never work in our world. But what if we tried it? What evidence do we have? And I'm a big fan of, have you come across Ray Dalio's book, Principles? No. Okay, it's a must read. Ray Dalio runs the world's largest privately owned hedge fund. And he has a policy that if you mess up, then you have to record it in the failure log. If you don't, you get fired. And he encourages people to make mistakes. And I think mistakes are part of learning. It's one of the best things because when you make a mistake, it's instantly memorable, particularly where there's a certain flush to your face uh, when you realize what a terrible gaffe you've made. And I've found that when I mess up in front of a prospect, that's another opportunity for me to learn. And I can just say to them, Dave, you know, that was a train wreck. I am so sorry. I hope you can forgive me. Do you mind if we rewind or? tell me, where did I go wrong? And I don't think there's enough vulnerability in salespeople because what they're trying to do is prove how smart they are. Exactly. I don't think that really lends itself to creating trust and comfort and allow salespeople to be great influencers. So, But if you think about what you just said, I mean, think about, just take that off into a social situation. If you're on a first date, which is really a first sales call, if you think about it, and somebody was so perfect, so slick, I'm awesome, everything I say is awesome, that's going to get a different reaction than just being human, right? And being vulnerable. 
And I think if you're human and vulnerable, you get a second date. The other one is, oh my gosh, I'm going to, I have to get off of internet dating. I mean, it's one of those deals. <laughs> but I think the other thing that you said, as far as failure is concerned, it's true. I think we do learn from our failures. I think sometimes, though, if people have a low eye or self esteem issue, then they look at failure as what? Did I fail or did the technique fail? The concept, and I think most people unfortunately gravitate towards it wasn't me, obviously. It was the technique. It was this or it was that. I don't know if you found the same. Definitely. Just for the audience, if you're not familiar with a low I, what we're talking about is a low identity. Identity is who you are. Role is what you do. And it's very easy for people to confuse the two, particularly where they've grown up in an environment where they've had a strongly critical parent who used to point the finger with the capital pronoun, you disappoint, you're a failure. And when you fail in a role, it is just that. It's role failure. It's not a personality defect. This is, again, another reason why creating a really strong, safe environment for practice. Perfect practice makes perfect. This is one of the reasons why I think training fails as well, because people go through the motions. It's like rote learning. What they're not doing is they're not putting themselves into the role, acting as if their life depended on this, as if it was real life. They're not taking those risks. And as a result of that, what they get is they get technique but they don't really get intent. And I think that's critical. Agreed. Your thoughts? No, I agree. I mean, I think we're back to the concept versus, give me the words again, give me the words. I think they get lost. I think what's transferable is the concept or the intent. It's not the actual technique. And I think that's really when you've gone to the next level of application, right? I mean, in certification, certainly bronze in my world is you, you know it. You know what it is, but silver is more you can actually apply it, which is great. But when does it become muscle memory? And, you know, and I think to your point, it's not muscle memory doesn't happen because you win every single time. Muscle memory happens for me personally is when I can't get out of the sand trap and I'm 17 shots in already and I just pick it up and throw it out. I mean, I'm going to remember that. (laughs) (laughs) You and I clearly have the same approach to God. Yeah, Yeah. like, what am I doing here? I have a magnetic attraction to sand. Okay, so one of the things that I really love about the work that we do at Sandler is the whole idea of instructor-led training, but with reinforcement in conjunction, in partnership with the manager. Why is it that so few training organizations really exercise lifetime ongoing reinforcement? I would like to say they don't understand it, but I I can't imagine that that's true because everyone intuitively knows that ongoing reinforcement training is the way to have sustainable change, right? We've been doing this since we were children. I didn't learn from my parents in a one-day seminar on how to become a parent when I grew up. It was just a, a long period of time where we did all that. And so instructor-led training in my world, I still think is the best way when you're learning how to be a sales leader or a salesperson. You may not need that when you're learning a product, but that is key. So now I say, okay, well, why aren't we doing it? Well, I would say a couple different reasons. One, sales leaders never had that reinforcement done to them. So therefore, they're just repeating. It's like third-generation poverty. They're repeating what they know. They don't know any different. I think the other thing is time compression. So sales leaders and salespeople to a certain extent would say, well, I don't need to go through this reinforcement process because that takes a lot of time. Now, you and I both know that when we have people in our our workshops, they'll come to you and say, honestly, I didn't even want to come here. I resisted it, but I would have spent five days here. It was the best thing that I've ever seen in my career. That's awesome. But most people would tell you that I don't have any time. So reinforcement, in their mind, is a time suck. And I think what I've learned over time is that people will measure the time it's going to take for them to invest in something, but they don't measure the time it takes them to clean up their messes, right? So so that's It's cost versus value. Exactly. 
So to me, that's there. But I think when you do have reinforcement, especially when you're in a group environment, I think there's magic that goes on there. One is peer-to-peer because you're going to say something that hits home with me, even if my manager said that to me, because it came from a different source, right? So like, for instance, when my dad comes to visit, I've been telling my son to do something forever. He sees my mouth moving at this point, but there's like, he doesn't hear anything coming out of there. So <laughs> it's I like my, sleeping. <laughs> exactly. I give my father a list of things that I want him to either bring up or reinforce with my son. You know, as, as depressing as it is, Marcus, when my son comes to me and says, hey, listen, I was talking to Pop Pop and he said I should be doing this. And, and I really think that's a good idea. I really want to just hit my head against the wall and say, you know, I've been telling you that for like a year. But, you know, when somebody else hears it from a fresh voice, it has merit. So that peer-to-peer is I've never seen anything as strong as that when it happens in our mastery classes or our our programs. And I think the other thing that happens on instructor-led is that me to you, right? Instructor to student. I think adults learn by imitation and illustration. I'm going to not just explain what the concept is, but I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to play you as a salesperson so you can hear it, feel it, sense it, and push back. See, that's the other thing. You have the ability, instructor-led training, to push back, to say that's rubbish. I don't get it. I don't see it. Because once you can switch and say, okay, that's, that's fair, but let me try it this way. And once you can get past that and show them that there's a different way to maybe say it or do it, then there's ownership. Because they've gone from denial to acceptance. And that can't happen with a computer-led training program. And by the way, we've got all of them. So it's not like I'm trying to shove the audience into, hey, you should do sandwiches of instructor-led training. We do all of them. I just happen to to believe, based on 30 years, that instructor-led training is the best way to do it when it comes to sales and sales leadership. And And you need to reinforce it. Because yeah. adults, you know, it's like university. Do we send everyone to university for two days? Nope. Doesn't Only for his gave up degrees. <laughs> exactly. Let me do it this way. I hope my doctor doesn't go to a two-day degree. Uh, I would say it this way. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know that Oscar Wilde had the same problem. I couldn't believe how stupid my father was when I was 14. <laughs> and I couldn't believe how much he'd learned by the time I was 21. He'll get there in the end. Let me ask you this. I asked the question about learner's responsibility. I think one of the other aspects of this is that it's the learner's responsibility to take ownership for their own reinforcement. When I work with my clients, I make it part of my upfront contract with them that each learner must put in one hour a day of study. And when you look at the outrageous fees that I charge the company, I think it's perfectly reasonable for them to expect their people to put the time and effort in to complement the training. Why is it that so few managers are willing to enforce that and make it part of the contract with their salespeople? That study is a daily activity and it's mandatory. It's not something that they can just shirk away from without consequence. Well, I think there's probably three reasons. One, in their mind, they think I've hired veterans, so therefore they may not need it because I've hired an absolute movie star. Okay. I think that's a... The second is they don't know how to reinforce it. They don't know how to do the things that are necessary to get that done. So basically, hey, I don't know it, so therefore I'm not going to push it. But I think the other, the big reason is management courage. What happens if they say no, Marcus? What am I going to do? This person is well above quota. So am I going to push their buttons on how to become better when they're already doing okay? Or let's just say it's the middle of the road. Because in today's environment, I think most people, it's not true, some think that a deadhead is better than no head. And I Mm -hmm. think you have to look at people who are not willing and able to step up to your culture that they need to leave. But most people are not at that place in time. They're going to leave if they've done something horrific. They're going to leave if they're not hitting their numbers, which, by the way, never happens the first time. It's the third year now that you haven't hit your numbers. So they're afraid. They're afraid that, hey, I need headcount. 
I have a personal quota for my group. I need all of that. And so I'm going to put up with this. And I think it's a mistake. I think the organizations that have a grid to plot people and who is willing to do the things that you're talking about. And then as a result, who is able, who's able to get that job done. That's an awesome, awesome grid. Because what you're talking about sometimes is the unwilling part. And that attitude of entitlement, which is training is for other people, or I've hit my number, so therefore I don't need to put in the time and energy to improve, that entitlement mentality has to be squashed at all levels. And you're better off as a leader just drawing the line in the sand as much as they say, well, that would, I don't know how to do that. That would actually hurt me, but it's hurting you already. You just don't know how to measure it. I know this was a topic that you covered in your book, The Success Cadence. For those of you who haven't read it, Dave wrote it with a couple of the guys out of Splunk. Splunk was a company that Sander started working with around, what, 62 million? And five years later, they were 1.1 billion. So bear in mind, that is 200% year-on-year growth. Now, one of the key things was making sure that the culture was absolutely on the money and making sure people fit that culture. And if they didn't fit that culture, they would work them out of the business, even if they were top-performing veterans. Because the rule is very simple, better no breath than bad breath. Now, that experience of working with Splunk and helping them go through such massive growth, how did you manage or how did they manage that level of continued sustained growth without the wheels coming off? A couple ways. Number one is that the sales organization ran that company. And not that everyone else didn't have a seat at the table, they did. But in most organizations, hyper-growth technology companies, it's product or it's engineering or it's an account that runs that group. And sales is left to sell stuff that maybe we shouldn't be selling to customers and, and all that other good stuff. They realized that even though they, were, they had services and products, they were a sales company who sold Splunk stuff, not the other way around. Like LinkedIn, to this day, still thinks they're a product company. And you know that's how they think. That's how they're organized. These guys said, sales talks to the customers. Sales is ultimately responsible for generating revenue. And sales will ultimately take the fall if we don't hit our numbers. Let them be in charge. That is a huge shift. So that's the first. Second, they had the process in place. So they tweaked it all the time. They never rested on their past laurels. So that was there. And they had a culture of we. So as a leader, as an example, if your people on your team were not promoted to other parts of the company, you never got promoted. Ever. Never. And so you say, well, why would that be true? Because they just assume that you're thinking for the best of your group and not the best of the company. And if the people on your team shouldn't be in other parts of the company, you shouldn't have hired them. So stop protecting your golden children and make it good for the overall organization. And so they had those rules in place. They had the rules of sales entitlement. I witnessed them getting rid of the top two producers because they refused to do what everyone else was doing because, quote unquote, they were above the fray. Well, they were unemployed too. So those guys put up with nothing. They always said, you have an option. And because of that though, Marcus, and here's the weird thing, and it's not weird, but it's it, people don't think about it. Because they held by the rules, regardless of who you were, that actually became a fantastic recruiting because everyone in the industry knew that, hey, there are no exceptions. Everybody follows the rules. There's no, you know, oh, you got you get to do X, Y, and Z because you got to play golf with the, you know, the CEO. That held no water. And as long as you were willing and continually increased your skill level, you did really well there. And they weeded everyone else out. And to the point where I talked to people that joined midway through that journey of theirs, and they said, honestly, I've been in a, a pool of crap at my current company because there are no rules. It changes all the time. And the clarity by which they manage their people was the number one attraction. 
Yeah, fabulous story. Well, this then brings me to my next question, because I hear so often, well, my veterans don't need training. My veterans don't need coaching. I think this is one of the most strategically stupid statements I've ever heard, Mm -hmm. because your veterans are the people who are probably managing the relationships with your largest, most profitable, most successful accounts, and they want to get better. If they don't feel like they're evolving and they're just going through the motions, they get stale. And if you don't look after your veterans by training them, coaching, developing them, it doesn't mean that they have to go into management. I partnered up with a recruiter over here in the UK, and he only focuses on the top 1% of software salespeople globally. And he says very clearly that the majority of them do not ever want to touch management. They are sales through and through. All they want to do is sell, make a lot of money, um, Mm -hmm. solve people's problems. They've got no desire to take a pay cut and the headache of managing people. But they do want to get better. They want to go from 1.8 million to 5 million in personal income. They want to go from 5 million to 10 million in personal income. And these guys really do They're hungry, they're bright, they're capable. But why is it that so few managers are willing to take the time to coach them? I think it's two reasons. Number one, fear. I don't want to push my veterans into doing anything because they make the majority of the money for us. Fear, I don't really know how to coach a top producer. I've been used to yelling at people that are on the bottom of the funnel, (laughs) not at the top. And these people will push back. And honestly, I really don't have a good answer for them. And I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with that. I'm happy to role play with somebody that I shouldn't have hired versus role play with the number one producer. So I think there's a lot of fear there. To your point, are top producers stuck in a comfort zone? Some of them. Is it because they want to be? No. Is everybody in a comfort zone? No. But if you take sales out of it for a second and just think about any top athlete, a top athlete would be in the top five people in your company, right? So they're at the top of their game. They don't hit the pros and say, thank goodness I'm here. I never have to go out and practice. I hated practice. That's not how it works. We coach professional athletes. They actually practice like 10 times harder than when they left university. Because everybody wants a piece of them. Everybody wants to knock them off the top. And in order to, I guess, enjoy what comes with being at the top of your game, money and everything else, they really do work. And it's just not pro athletes. It's doctors go for continuing education. Pilots do. I mean, CEOs, you know, we do an awful lot of CEO coaching. CEOs go to a lot of events. Everybody has and and should have this innate desire to improve. And I think that's important. So if it's not part of your culture, you're going to be stagnant. There's There's only a certain amount of ways to say it. You are going to fizzle out. And here's the other thing, Marcus. You can be a top producer today, or you can know and be on the top of your game today, because you don't have to be a producer. You could be a product expert, let's say. But the fact is, in my world, the world's changed dramatically over the last five years. I mean, dramatically. So if I was a top producer five years ago, and I'm not staying abreast of what's going on and becoming really a becoming master at other things that have popped up, I'm going to become irrelevant And because things have passed you by. And I think that is the darn truth when it comes into the hyper speed by which the world is operating today. You've got to stay ahead of that curve, even though you think you're the king or the queen of the company today, that's not necessarily true tomorrow. And even in our network, Marcus, think about the people who dominated 20 years ago. Not that they're not relevant, they are, but, but you and I both know some of them are walking around saying, what the hell happened? I mean, what happened? Everyone knew me. I mean, I was, I was like the guy. And now they think I'm here serving coffee. I mean, what happened? Well, they didn't put the time and energy in and they discounted all of the hard work. I mean, how many people do we know that worked like dogs to get to whatever success is for them? And then they stopped for whatever reason, because it was a quest to climb the mountain 
And they forgot that the mountain is only a plateau. It's not the end. And I think that's where people get messed up. Absolutely agree. What I see, I always describe people like that as fat, dumb, and happy. It came from one of my accountancy clients. And we had 14 partners. They'd spent years and years and years just doing audit, bit of tax, and a little bit of personal finance for people. And as the rules have changed, they didn't bother to keep up. And so they now find themselves in a position where they're at risk of having breached their duty to their clients because they've missed out on changes that happened three, four, five years ago because they were making a quarter of a million a year. And that was really challenging for them, changing that culture. I see it across the board in our business and wherever. Professional yeah. services, it's, it's huge, right? To your point, yeah. you've got people who were awesome, have been writing their book of business for a period of time, but let's give them some credit for a second, although it's difficult. And you put yourself in their position. They don't know a lot about psychology like you and I do, and they're at the top of their game. And then they realize maybe that's not true. It's very humbling when you're at the same level everyone else is at certain topics in your company, when you were revered as the person. And I think some people can't really get their heads around that that's situational to begin with and B, what they did to actually get there the first time, they got to continue. To your point, I think it's just, I think it's hard for most people to go backwards in order to move forward. I agree. And having the vulnerability and the humility to be able to recognize Mm -hmm. that while you may have been a contender, you no longer are. And it's like seeing Sly Stallone trying to be Rocky. He was fine then, but at 68 or whatever he is now, yeah, he's still in great shape, but he's not at his prime. And I think people need to learn to adapt. I really want to take this into my particular passion, which is the channel. Now, you and I have both spent a lot of time in and around channel sales. So for those of you who are not familiar with channel sales, it's any form of selling through third parties. So resellers, managed service providers, systems integrators, distributors, franchises, agencies, partnerships, alliances, anything like that. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with this world, 75% of all physical product sold across all 26 vertical markets today are sold through partners. Okay, so if you don't think you're in the channel, if you don't think you're in partnership sales, you probably are, you just don't call it that. And in technology, 90% of technology will be sold through third-party partnerships, through partners, by 2026, according to Gartner. And we're definitely seeing that trend. What I'm really curious about is your vision for how organizations need to adapt, given that we are moving breakneck speed. And more has changed in the last two years in channel sales than in the previous 35 years. Looking at the training of partners, what do you see organizations need to do in order to ensure that their partners are selling products and services appropriately and effectively? Because historically, the channel has been the illegitimate, ugly stepdaughter yeah, right. of direct yeah. sales. And it's where Tim Nicebutt Din, who was good at the Christmas party, they don't really want to fire him. And they send him off into the channel, move his target a decimal point to the right and say, what harm can he do? Or where they throw the greenhorn salesperson in to go and cut their teeth. Given that massive seismic shift in the way things are moving, and you only have to look at Coca-Cola in 2018, Uh, letting 22,000 direct salespeople and outsourcing all of their sales to their bottling partners. So I'm really curious to see your insight into how organizations need to change the way they treat their channel and train their channel to sell. I think the maybe a simple answer is treat them like employees. Oftentimes, I think the channel is, to your point, is that that stepchild. And then I'm going to I'll go on a wide variety of examples, but how many times does the channel actually get all the support materials that a home office would provide their own employees? And I'm always amazed. Like, why wouldn't you give that to the channel? Well, they're not part of us, really, because they brought in like 80% of your revenue. I don't 
I don't understand that logic, actually. So there's always an us, them versus it's a we. So that's there. But I think if we go back to the more important example would be a common sales process. I think that if I had a a channel, let's assume for a second that that channel had other options because that is true sometimes. You're selling additional products and services that may not be yours. You need Mindshare. So you want to make sure that your channel is thanking you for their success and you're providing value to them that no one else is. So the first thing I would do is to make sure that we have a common sales methodology across the board. This is how we're going to sell X, Y, and Z. And therefore, this is how I'm supporting it. Here's the marketing pieces that go in each of these. Here's the drip campaigns that go under each of these stages. By the way, here's how we're going to help you get from stage one to stage two. This is our coaching that we're going to be providing. This is our training that we're going to be providing. And most of the time, as you know, you know better than others, that doesn't actually happen because they see it as a suck of resources versus you're actually feeding the animal that's producing the majority of your revenue. And I think that's a huge disconnect. To your point, you're right. We can't fire you. Um, So we're going to put you over in the channel and it's a nightmare, but there's no goal setting between us and the channel. There's no constant support from a selling perspective, from a managing perspective, from an ongoing education perspective, all this stuff that you would think is second nature, because look, I've got 265 people in my channel, right? And listen, I was in the same camp. I would like, Hey, we've do stuff over here at home office. We're not going to share that with the field. First of all, I don't know how I would have even thought it like that, but I did. And there was a period of time, 15 years ago, I said, that's ridiculous. So, you know, we use home office almost as a test ground to make sure that we roll out as much as possible to the field because you want them to be successful. You want them to thank you for the success and you want them to work as hard as they can for you and all all the obvious reasons. But I wasn't any different. I mean, I fell into that trap. Like, oh my God, that's very expensive to do that for them. They should be doing it on their own. Yeah, okay, maybe. But would your employees do it on their own? If the answer is no, then you should be doing it for them. That's how I would look at it. This is really interesting because the research, since Dave and I wrote the book, Making Talent Sales Work, we've been obviously talking to lots and lots of vendors. And what we're finding is that 2% of the channel partners produce between 40 and 60% of the channel revenue. And this is a terrifying statistic when you think about it, that 98% of your investment in time, money, resource, marketing development funds, spiffs, and all those other things that are being invested in the channel are largely being wasted because people and your resources are being stretched very wide across unproductive fallow ground. And we're reaching the conclusion is that it makes sense to work with that top 2% and help them grow. And in fact, one of my partners that I'm allied with, he would never work with more than one or maximum of two partners in a particular region. And we're talking Central Africa or the entire Gulf states. And they were achieving 4,000% growth per annum. Because they supported a few? (laughs) Because they supported a few, they spent all of their time with their partners, 80% plus, coaching them in the field, helping them to fill their pipeline, helping them to disqualify non-opportunities, helping them to get deals over the line, putting money in their backs. And those partners were loyal over a 15-year period. In fact, the guy's just sold out and exited, and he's retired at the grand old age, I think, of 39 with tens of millions that he walked away from with his partners and so on. But what was really interesting was that they spent their time teaching them how to sell, helping them sell, challenging them. And I think this is another really important part of the training that's required, both in direct and uh, in channel, that you need to have a contract with your partners and with your salespeople that you will engage in constructive conflict. And one of the things I see far too often is managers, channel managers, channel chiefs, in the same way that you know, those, we don't want to rock the boat with those veterans. 
You need to be ready to have difficult, uncomfortable conversations, grown up to grown up, and say, this isn't working, and have the intellectual humility to say, you know, you're right, and have the vulnerability to say, I'm sorry, what can we do about it? And actually working in partnership, partners help each other get better. And certainly within Sandler, I've noticed that over the last five to seven years, that real sense that you guys are doing your utmost to help us get better at what we do and providing the tools and the technology, but also challenging us. At the conference last week, it was refreshing that you sat up there and you challenged us to think differently. And I think a good vendor needs to be ready to stand up and be counted and say, it's not perfect, but this is what we don't like about what you guys are doing. And we want to see that change. And this is how we're going to help you to do that. It's like a marriage, isn't it? If you think about it. Exactly. And the other thing that you're, you're talking about, I think some are missing, which is you have to look at me helping the channel grow, whoever me is, as an investment and yeah. not an expense. And I think, you know, sometimes we love the money that channels produce. We just don't want to spend our own money helping you get there because that's your responsibility. Oh, that's their responsibility. I think that's the mind shift that has to change, which is, hey, we're married. My job is to help you become successful and not look what I've given you. So therefore, where are my sales? That attitude, although it's pervasive everywhere, is going to be the downfall of the channel because eventually people are going to embrace the philosophies that, that you've brought to the table under the channel book. And they're going to be like, hey, you know what? There is a better road. and you're going to be in trouble, in my opinion, because I can't tell you how many channel people think, well, no, I'm not paying for that. Okay. Once again, they're looking at it as a transactional expense, Marcus, and it's a problem. Absolutely. I see this a lot. Vendors, uh, CFOs saying, well, we're not going to spend that. That's their responsibility. What if they sell other people's stuff? Well, that's the dumbest approach you can possibly take. The reality is, if you help them succeed, The law of reciprocation generally means that they will find a way to reciprocate and they will help you. Yes, you'll get burnt a few times, but on balance, the upside of investing in the right partners. And I have four functions of management. In sales management, your job is to hire the best people, get the best out of them. That means training, coaching, and supporting them and also holding them to account. Making sure they have the right tools to do their best work every day and protecting them from idiot senior management. Those are the four primary functions of a manager. The primary functions of a channel manager and a channel chief are to recruit the best partners, to get the best out of them, help them achieve their goals, their objectives, because they are in business for their reasons, not your reasons. Every one of your franchisees is in business for their personal individual reasons, not for yours. And it's your job, Emerson's Law of Compensation states, to get more, give more. Help enough other people get their needs met and you'll get your needs met too. Make sure they have the tools and the resources they need to do their best work every day. So in terms of training, selling, developing accounts, keeping accounts, hiring associates, whatever it happens to be, make sure we have the right tools and then protect us from people who want to prevent us from doing our best work. I'm not pointing the finger anywhere here. I'm talking generally uh, in franchises. It could be finance. It could be legal. It could be domain leaders in marketing and operations in IT. And the Splunk example is a really perfect example of this where they put sales in charge. Sales is the engine that drives those businesses. In, In our business in Sandler, if we don't sell, we starve. There is no safety net. So it's really key that you look after your partners. I interviewed a guy called Kieran Cron, who won the award for the world's best channel manager. And I've got to be honest, I was skeptical when I heard that. But I was referred to him. I had him on my podcast coaching individual salespeople within his partners, 80% helping them get their needs met training them, developing them, making sure they have the information, the resources, the tools that they need. And it was so refreshing. He's only been in sales seven years. 
He's a young whippersnapper. Last I saw, he was up a mountain in Borneo, I believe, because HubSpot has an unlimited vacation policy. How enlightened is that? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think, though, Emerson's law gets twisted around a little bit? You know, if you help others get what they want, you inevitably will as well. And I give more to get more and all the other ones that circle that. But don't you think it's really loosely translated into help me get what I want first and then I'll worry about you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, but this and that's is about the downside. Intent. Yeah, that's the downside of that, that whole. Well, I have a real bugbear about this. When I'm teaching my clients, I always start with intent. Why are you speaking to a prospect? Why are you in front of them? Why are you having a meeting with the CEO? And if your intent is not to see if you can help, and if you can help, are you the best person to do so? And if the answer to either of those questions is no, you have an obligation to say, hands up, I'm the wrong guy, and to walk away. But too often, people are driven by a scarcity mentality. They're worried about the cost, not the investment. They're not focused on contribution. And I have a massive mission in life, which is I believe that sales is absolutely a force for good. But as a profession, we've been tainted. And there are too many people in it who do not hold that philosophy. And I think it does them harm, it does their customers harm, and it does the profession as a whole harm. Agreed. It's heartbreaking. Dave, we're coming to the top of the hour. I've got a couple more quick questions. I'm really curious about what your roadmap is for technology within Sana. Do you mind giving us a quick overview of the direction that you're taking it? For me, I've got a couple different roads, right? So I have to look at it as how am I using technology at home office to scale, to become more effective in communication, to become more efficient? So all of the home office, but then I say, okay, how are we using technology for our channel? And making it easy for them to access, you know, access what they need, to gain insights that they may not have individually, because I think that's also something that technology can do, and then give them the tools necessary to succeed. And I think the third track for us is our clients, our yeah. customers, and how are we using technology to make it easier for them to consume content and to become better at what they do. And these are three separate roads. You may have some technology that overlaps, but even in today's world, everyone's talking about augmented reality and AI and all that stuff. And it's true. We're instituting you know, gamification and, and AI and all the other things, which helps us become laser-focused in what we need to do to be better. And I think that's really, if you boil down technology, and there's a, unfortunately, there's a downside to technology which is there's a lot of white noise out there. You don't sometimes know what to pick or you pick technology based on a single voice or a small group of people in your company saying this is awesome. But does it actually solve a greater need? And more times than not, it's not. And does it actually communicate with everything else that I do? Because technology by itself is cool. But if you're trying to set it or create it into a framework, does it actually talk and does it leverage the other pieces of technology that I have? And the answer is no. I think you need to walk away from it, which is really hard. And I've made some, I've made some blunders for sure. I mean, I'm, <laughs> and I'm sure I'm not done with that, actually, I would, I would think. I would like to be. But well, I if you're that, not making blunders, you're not taking risks. Yeah, I think that's true in, in a lot of things. And of course, yes, it's true if you were to look at it completely unemotional. But when you're making blunders and others are affected by it, you know, you've got to make sure that your chips, your trust chips are still in good stead. Otherwise we're in trouble. But I think for me, those are the three avenues that I have paths for. Again, it's our home office, it's our channel, and then our client base. And then what can we use that that leverages technology in each of those areas? But again, Sometimes less is more, right? Less is yeah. more. And to me, that's kind of where we're heading. As much as we talked about facilitator-led training. Look, I streamed 19,000 people last year. And we had 31,000 people in a classroom. Does that mean we should abandon instructor-led training? Absolutely not. 
that just means that we're using technology to augment what we do so we can shrink the amount of time it takes somebody to become successful. And I think if you look at it with a purpose and what's it doing, then I think we're going to be a lot better off. And, and, you know, and there's always something, you know, the problem with technology is you've paid for it and it's already outdated, right? It's just the way it's going to be. So you got to pick and choose. You know, I've learned the hard way for sure. I've got one brief rant to wrap up on, which is I see all of this sales enablement technology being invested in. And you're talking about hundreds of dollars a month being thrown at salespeople. All this tech is fantastic if you get the basics right. It just feels like, I can't say the word on the podcast, it feels like giving yourself a stroke, uh, throwing shed loads of money at all this sales enablement technology when you haven't got the basics right. Teach salespeople how to pick up the phone. How often are you hearing people complain that their salespeople don't pick up the phone? Well, why don't you address the issue at its cause instead of trying to develop a technological workaround um, right. that isn't going to give the result anyway? You would be much better off firing a lot of those people, recruiting people who are willing to do the behavior, you know, the willing and competent, and really investing in doing the basics well. I'm seeing billions of dollars a year being thrown at sales enablement. For shortcuts. Never going to work. No, it's a shortcut. You still have to do the activity. You still have to do the behavior. And you're still ultimately accountable for your success. And I think technology, unfortunately, even for sales leaders, we use a lot of technology. Okay, that's great. How about actually coaching your people? How about spending some time with your people? Nothing that you're going to do is going to be to offset that and to be better than that. So to your point, I think sometimes people are using technology to take the easy way versus the right way. Absolutely. Okay, Dave, two very quick questions then. Yeah. Who are you being influenced by in terms of books you're reading, podcasts that you're listening to, videos that you're watching? I read a ton of stuff out of Harvard Business Review. I read all the studies coming out of Forrester or Gartner. You know, I just read the latest book from Tom Ziegler. I just read the, the last book from Scott Hallman, The Seven Six Successes to Drive Hypergrowth. And, you know, hypergrowth is like on my, on my top of my mind all the time and how to do that without making mistakes. So that's kind of where I've, I focus my time. But I read a lot. And that was Tom Hallman, H-A-L-M-A-N? Scott, yeah, Scott Hallman. Yep, H-A-L-L-M-A-N. Seven okay. Success Drivers to Hypergrowth. And let me ask you this. In mm-hmm. fact, a great recommendation for you, FS Blog, Farnham Street. Have you come across that? Um, promise you'll be addicted. I'm just issuing you with a golden ticket, and you can go back and advise your idiot 23-year-old self. What advice would you give him to save you a world of heartache, pain, and regret? Well, I mean, I think I would probably, the one I'm going to pick is the one that probably would have the most value to me from 18 to where I am today or 23 to where I am today versus situational advice. But to me, it's probably lighten up. And what I mean by that is I've had this quest to be successful since I was a kid, right? We grew up poor, had no money, so I'm out to prove something. I had a business when I was 18, had a ton of money, before, but by the time I was 24, lost it. And I just, I work like a dog. And even though as I told you, I know that working harder doesn't mean that you're more <laughs> successful, but I do work a lot of hours. Even with my wife, for instance, if she gets up at 10 a.m. on a Saturday because she wants to sleep in, to me, that's like awesome because I've already got six hours into it and she doesn't have to know that I'm a workaholic because I'm actually focused on her during the day. So it's not that it goes away, but I know the more that you're out of the business and working on the business, the world continues. So would I tell myself at 23, you know, hey, lighten up, work-life balance, enjoy? Yeah, I would. And I probably would have done that differently. But, you know, even... You've listened. Yeah, I would have listened. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I would have listened, actually, because, <laughs> because, I, because that's how I, you know, I've been wired since day one. But, you know, even this, even this summer, and I've said this internally, I've hired a whole group of leaders and it's probably the first summer, Marcus, that I've been here 30 years 
that I haven't worked a ton of hours on each of those weekend days, regardless if it's two o'clock in the morning or, you know, in the mornings, no one actually knows. And I didn't do it. And guess what? We're still growing. We're still alive. And I probably should have done that 26 years ago. It's great advice. Dave, thank you. This has been really fantastic. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, learned a ton. If you guys want to connect with Dave, he's on LinkedIn. He's the CEO of Sandra Training. Massive inspiration to all of us and a great leader. Dave, any final thoughts? No. Hey, listen, I appreciate being on. You know, I'm a big fan. And uh, yeah, check us out at sandler.com. Brilliant. Okay. And also have a listen to our How to Succeed podcast. Obviously, this has got to be your favorite one, the Inquisitor podcast, but Sandler has a, a good close second with How to Succeed. Dave, thanks so much. Been thanks, Marcus. Take care now. Bye-bye. Cheers.